You've got the music. You've got the desire. You've got the passion. We've got the knowledge. The musicpreneur.com podcast starts now. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Lambie. You're about to hear my interview with a bassist who I was, I, I derived a lot of influence, positive influences from in terms of not only his playing, but his just his mindset towards developing his career path. You're going to hear me use the word tenacious. He's got grit. There's something about the way he carries himself that really has a, an impact on me when I met him years ago. This interview is about my curiosity with how people do it, right? I've been a career basis for 30 plus years. I've had my own business. You know, I keep my business mindset about my own music craft and, and how I make money doing it. I have great employment opportunities that I've been able to take advantage of through my Army Band program experience and now as a civilian uh, government-employed instructor at the School of Music playing bass all day and teaching. But I'm not done yet, you know what I mean? And I, I really, there's so much to learn from others, and I, I've got this curiosity. How do they do it? I have so much respect for so many players, and you're going to probably hear a lot of bass players coming from me for a little while, as that's kind of been my, you know, of course, it's my niche, but it's just, I've run into some really sharp people. And Brian, it was one of those guys that I met with, and I asked if he'd be interested in teaching at my school for a clinic or something, and we had lunch, and this is years ago, and I just thought, man, this guy is is really sharp. And it was more than just being a, a fine musician, which in the music profession isn't really special. It's assumed. <laughs> So what makes somebody special in music business is a lot of other factors, and that is what I'm curious about. And I hope you'll follow along with me in the journey and, and let me know what you think. Uh, reach out to us at musicpreneur.com. Let us know if you think this is beneficial. This bass player, Brian Beller, I, I just I, I think you're going to enjoy this. He's, if you look him up, you're going to find that this guy has just done a lot of work, and he has been really um, consistent with getting himself out there and uh, I hope you enjoy this. Hey, everybody. Musicpreneur Podcast hosting today is me, Jim Lambie. And I have an awesome guest I've been looking forward to interviewing. Uh, he's made an amazing, uh, a huge impact on me over the years, not only as a bassist, but just his mindset towards music and careers. And I thought it'd be really uh, interesting experience to have a conversation. And we're going to be speaking with Brian Beller. Brian Beller is a bassist who, with if you look him up, you're going to find a huge discography of, of artists he's worked with. Um, people like um, he's toured with Rock Virtuosos, Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, Mike Keneally. Then this fun band he was in, Death Clock, uh, which was from the Cartoon Network's metal uh, parody cartoon called Metalocalypse. And then uh, you'll see, you can find Brian's solo recordings. Uh, latest came out in 2019, and we'll talk about that shortly. And then you've got like this vast and various background, right, Ryan? Uh, SWR, uh, Bass Player Magazine, you got education, and we're going to get into all that. So, Brian Beller, welcome to Musicpreneur. Thank you for that very, very illustrious introduction. I feel I feel honored to be here. And just thinking back on, on you know, it's funny because when we were when we were working together directly at the Armed Forces School of Music, it was like 13 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, it just hearing it all kind of recited back all the stuff. It's just like, wait a minute, I must 
I must be, I must have been around a long time for all that to happen. Am I old? Well, I mean, compared to who? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, exactly. It's all relative. It's all relative. Right. And I love that. It's like you're breaking ground in all kinds of areas with uh, um, your latest and long time band you've been with now. Uh, it was new at the time. You weren't in Aristocrats when I first knew you, but that band's really taken off and had a, built a community and. Uh, you were a big part of the management of that group for a while when it was getting on its feet. Well, yeah. So for, for those who don't know, I mean, the Aristocrats is an instrumental rock power trio with uh, me on bass and uh, Marco Miniman on drums, who a lot of people had known from his work with Creator and Adrian Ballou. And uh, he was a drum clinician who had solo DVDs out. And he played with a lot of bands in Germany and, and had done a lot of work already. And then Guthrie Govan on guitar, who the guitar... You know, the guitar aficionados out there knew who he was, but not everybody knew who he was. He had a solo album out called Erotic Cakes, which was a real underground kind of sensation. But there was a lot of buzz around him. And for whatever reason, when the three of us got together and formed this band, you know, you just never know. We did a show at the NAMM show that was just supposed to be a one-off. And then it turned out that the chemistry was really good and the audience really, really picked up on that. And we'd all done a lot of one-off shows. And we remember what that felt like. We all looked at each other afterwards like, wow. That was different. That was good. Like, maybe we should actually do something with this. Like, maybe, how, you know, and so we talked and we're like, we decided to become a band called the Aristocrats and which is named after the dirty joke because some of our song titles were uh, adult content oriented. And then also we decided to make a record and start playing. And what we found was for whatever reason, people were really interested in what we were doing. And then we had to make the decision about all the business stuff, which was how are we going to run it? Mm. You know, are we going to like sign with a major label and like turn our management over to somebody outside our circle. And what about our, you know, publicity and, and booking agent and all the rest of that stuff. And what we all kind of discovered immediately was because we had all put out our own solo albums, we all really felt like it would be better if we did it all ourselves, which of course is a lot of extra work. But on the other hand, the rewards are a lot greater because you're just keeping a lot more of the money. I mean, when you do a record deal, you're really signing away a lot of the profits in exchange for an advance to make the album. But, you know, we all had enough money to make the album and making albums isn't as expensive as it used to be, thanks to digital technology, thankfully. Long story short, I ended up being the manager of the band for the first six years. We had another guy who was real close to us as the record company manager. And we had a couple different people doing booking. And that was it. That was our whole team. And we went from you know, just doing some regional tours in, two, in the first couple, like 2011 and 12, to like 2013, and then for the second album, Culture Clash, and 2015 for the third album, Trace Caballeros, and then even of 2019 and 2020, up until COVID happened with the last album, you know what, we're going all over the world. We were doing 120-date world tours in North America and Europe and Asia. It's so hard to make money as a musician in a band these days because the value of recorded music is just kind of keeps going down because of streaming and other forces in the industry that are just beyond our control. It just is what it is. But but that's why playing live is so important. We can get out there. That part we still continue to do well on, especially if you know we're a trio and we're essentially self-managed. And in the record company, there is still money that you can make when you're selling albums at the merch table shows. And it really helps if you own the record company. So uh, I don't manage the band anymore, like hands-on every single little thing. I turned that over to somebody else who's been a part of our inner circle the whole time a couple years ago. But I still have my fingers in the pie because I have business experience from when I used to work for SWR, which is a base amp company back in the, in the 80s, 90s and aughts. 
And then Fender bought that company and I was working on the corporate side, just doing all sorts of things for that company. You know, I could put together a spreadsheet and an outline and just kind of talk business talk and blah, 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 blah. And that's not for everybody, but I felt comfortable with it. And it turned out to be something that was useful for us. Yeah, I think that background, you uh, having, again, worked with you a while back, getting you um, to do clinics at the school I worked at um, or work at now, but just this, the idea that you were totally fearless when it came to like bureaucratic paperwork and corporate paperwork, you were like, yeah, no, whatever you need me to do, which I found very fascinating because a lot of artists I've worked with are like, I don't know anything about that. I don't want to do that. Just give me a check. That's yeah. been the secret a sauce in your in your mix. Would, could you speak to that? Well, yeah. And, and, you know, it's this is such a trite old saying, but it's like there's only one way to do something the right way. When I get into if I want to make an album, I spend a lot of time slaving over each of the sounds and making sure that the mix is exactly the way I want it to be. I mean, for, for Scenes from the Blood, my my last solo album, it's like this big solo. It's a double album. It's a progressive concept album. It's 18 songs, 88 minutes, 26 musicians. Joe Satriani's on it. John Petrucci's on it. Guthrie Govan is on it. And Mike Dawes, incredible acoustic guitarist. And Gene Hoagland, drummer from Death Clock. Mike Keneally. It's just a ton of people are on it. When it comes time to, to make an album and mix an album like that, you know, I want it to sound perfect. Mm. And that doesn't happen overnight. So it, I spent nine months mixing it. And that's the kind of person that I am now, you know, that it's not always easy to be around somebody like that. I think because I'm just, I do obsess over little details and I really do want everything to be as good as it can possibly be. The world isn't perfect. That's mm. just the, the way it is. And so you got to figure out a way to make the most of whatever it is that, that you're doing. And so if that means that, you know, you got, I had to have to do a little bit of extra paperwork in order to do a clinic at the armed forces school of music, because I'm not a registered Department of Defense contractor, then I'll do the paperwork. I actually looked at it as kind of a perverse challenge. It's like, okay, I've done paperwork before, but I've never registered as a contractor for the Department of Defense. This is going to be really interesting. Uh, especially in this day and age, you have to be able to balance the business aspects of what you're doing with the other things in order to make it work because you know nobody's going to do it for you. And if you're paying someone else to do it for you before you're generating a certain amount of income, it doesn't work anyway. That's interesting. I want uh, some of the words I would describe you from my impressions getting to talk to you and see you in action. I would use the word grit, tenacity, resourceful. Uh, I remember you uh, were sharing, putting together a home concert tour with your wife. This is before things were kicking off with, I think, Aristocrats or Death Clock. Is that is that right? Am I got the timing right on that? That's right. Yeah. You know, when I first moved to Nashville, I was basically starting over. You know, I, I think that people may have a, a mistaken impression of me that I was like always this constantly world touring musician. You know, in 2005, I was 34 years old. I hadn't done really much touring. I'd been working at the, the company uh, at SWR for a long time. And, and I just finally woke up one day and I was like, I'm going to be 35. And what am I doing? I got into this to be a musician not necessarily just to be on the corporate side, mm. although all those experiences proved to be very valuable down the road. So, so when I moved to Nashville in 2005 and I was kind of starting over and my wife at the time, Kira Small, was a, a singer-songwriter who was doing kind of a, a, an R&B kind of uh, funky kind of rootsy kind of thing. You know, I had my schedule was open and her schedule was open. And I was like, you know, we should get out there and we should just tour like as a, as a house concert thing. She'd heard from other people about the house concert circuit. And I, meanwhile, also had the ability to do bass clinics in music stores 
but you couldn't put together a whole week of base clinic music store clinics all the time. Also, you couldn't put together a whole week of house concerts all the time because of routing. But if you combine the two of those things, you could work five or six nights a week and just kind of route it across the country if you spent enough time making the phone calls and making sure that all the numbers added up and kind of putting in the legwork to, to do it all. And that's what we did. You know, we did a couple of nationwide tours. We made circles from Nashville and went all the way down to Texas and San Diego and up to Seattle and across the, the upper Midwest and then back to Nashville. And we were, we'd be out for like five, six weeks at a time. Like it was a real tour. Obviously we experienced a lot of really cool stuff along the way, but that involves a lot of elbow grease. You know, you're driving every mile, you know, you're trying to figure out your accommodations and whether it's going to be you're crashing at someone's house or the hotel. And then when you get to somebody's house, you're doing a house concert. That's not like setting up for a real concert. You really have to adapt to your surroundings and mm. uh, it's a lot of personal interaction. So yeah, it was the kind of thing that I really, really value the experience and I wouldn't trade it for anything. If you take that and kind of juxtapose it against some of the big tours with Joe Satriani and the bus tour, I mean, there's obviously great things about touring in a bus with Joe, but it's nice also to be able to kind of feel every mile and to be able to actually be able to touch and feel the places that you're going. Mm. And that was one of the, the really cool things about touring in that way. Yeah. And do you think that those experiences pushed you forward in terms of equipping you for the other opportunities that came along? It all counts. You know, I mean, I think any musician will tell you, you know, what it's like story of a professional musician is that one day you're playing for 5,000 people and the next day you're playing for 50. We've all experienced that. That's just mm. part of the deal. There's no point in I think getting hung up about like, you know, oh, I only do this sort of thing. I mean, it, in order to be able to make it these days, I think you need to be ready to do anything. A small cover gig or a big tour or, a, a, you know, a van tour. And with the aristocrats, you know, we tour in a van. We, we've looked at the numbers and we could maybe get a bus, but like we would definitely spend a lot of the profits on the bus. And we just decided that we'd rather have a van and day drive and stay in hotels. Fortunately, because it's our band, we can make those decisions. For other artists, you know, when you sign on to the deal, you sign on to the deal and whatever it is, it is. You have to be open and willing, I think, to a lot of different scenarios in order to have any shot of doing it at all. And it's not always comfortable. And so you have to be able to adapt. And I think most importantly, when you're traveling, you have to know exactly what it is, the, the things that you need on a day-to-day -day basis in order to be able to function so you can be present and show up to play music and entertain other people who have just decided to take a little bit of time out of their day to do nothing but be entertained by you and your music. That reminds me of the four factors of a pro musician thing that you had shared at one of your clinics um, at my school. You talked to the fact that you just said some show up for the audience and it just made me think about that. Uh, you had shared that these four things could, like almost a mission statement, master your craft, execute on demand, show up for the band, show up for the audience. So you, you guys are being respectful. You have, because of your respect, I believe, for your audience, you guys have built quite a community of fans. I feel like every successful artist has done that, whether consciously or not. You know, you, you have to take the time initially and, and know what you're doing on your instrument. That's just a basic. That's the, that's the price of admission for the whole thing. Mm. And then there's knowing what to do and then being able to do it when you need to do it under pressure. You know, that's the executing on demand part, because whether you're working for somebody else or you're working for yourself, you know, you got to be able to go up there and deliver the goods that you've been working on. You know how to do it. Now you just got to be able to do it in front of other people. And those are two different experiences. 
then it's time to, to deal with the interpersonal stuff, which is that you have to kind of show up in a way that you're available to the people in your band so that you can be a positive communicative force for music and interchanging ideas and energy with the guys that you're going to be on stage with or the women that you're going to be on stage with that day. And then if all that's together, then you can show up as a communicative force for the audience. So if you know what you're doing, you know you can do it on demand, you're good with the people that you're about to play with, then you can play for people and have it land for them. And then they'll they'll be a part of the experience and you can watch them react, you know, they'll they'll laugh or they'll be amazed by something or whatever. But you know, we're we're if you've done enough shows, you can you're playing for an audience, you know when you're connecting with them and you know when you're not. And so, you know, you want to do everything possible to make sure that you don't, you can do, you know, to connect with the audience. Sometimes an audience is just out to lunch and there's nothing you can do. That doesn't relieve you of the responsibility of going up there and doing it for real. Do you have any, uh, besides those four factors, like rules for the road, things that you do that guide you through your decision-making, perhaps picking an opportunity or developing your opportunities or your goals? Well, I think the mo the number one thing is managing your well-being if you're on the road. That's mm. like number one, two, and three. Because it's not natural to be in an environment where you are in a different place every day. And it's interesting that that this is coming from like an armed forces background because only very few professions really understand what it's like to kind of have to travel on demand and do whatever it is that you do in a given set of circumstances, which can change on a daily basis. I feel like professional athletes have to do that. All manner of entertainers, live entertainers have to do that. The military has to do that. You know, you just have to adapt to your surroundings and execute, you know, whatever it is you have to do. Circus performers, maybe some people in the travel industry, like people who actually work on the airplanes, where you're just in constant motion and you just have to deliver in different circumstances every day. There aren't that many people who really understand what that's like and the toll that it can take on you kind of spiritually, experientially, just, just can, it can drain you. You know, there are some people out there who I think feed on the energy of chaos, but most people need some kind of replenishment and you don't always get it when you need it. So you have to have, make sure that the things that you need to be able to deliver on demand are there for you. It means taking a nap at a strange time or making sure that your eating is right. I mean, we're talking really, really basic existence sure. stuff and it's easy to forget about that, but that those are the basic building blocks of being able to function and show up for other people. You got to take care of yourself. You got to have it to give. From your experiences, you had some setbacks and getting back in, you came out on top. What are some of your lessons learned from that experience? I mean, you, you were trying to get a gig that looked like it was a sure thing, didn't happen. For instance, I think it was Steve Vai, and then eventually it happened. What were some of your lessons learned from that experience? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, so I was young and I was pretty arrogant. I was fresh out of Berkeley College of Music and I had just done this Weasel Zappa gig and Steve I was holding auditions and it was for his live band. It was for the first G3 tour, which is a big deal, turns mm -hmm. out. You know, it was the, that was the Satriani, Steve I, Eric Johnson tour in 1996. It was an audition against only one other person. And I, I, I just remember thinking, I have got this. And I practiced and I, you know, practiced and I practiced and I learned the parts and I learned the parts and I made sure I knew the parts and I came in. And I nailed the parts, totally nailed them. I, I really wanted Steve to know that I could nail them. I, I really just kind of tried to project that energy, confidence. And I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't understand why. I was like, well, wait a minute, I did everything right. The lesson that I learned about that is that just being able to do it right 
that just gets you in the door. Doing it right, you know, that's not the first requirement. Then it's what's your personal vibe like? And our business is, well, what do you look like? What's your stage presence like? What's your sound like? What's your vibe like? What's your feel like? Where do you put the groove? I mean, there's just all manner of various factors that go into it. Some of it is just completely capricious. You have no control over it at all. But I realized that when I was in the audition that I was really coming from a place of, I want to prove to this guy that I can do this thing. That kind of thinking has its limitations. It, it, it makes it so that it's all about you proving to them as opposed to you listening to them, trying to exchange energy with them. And I didn't realize that until you know a couple of years down the road because I was 25 at the time and, and I, you know, I was pretty inexperienced. 11 years later, I had another opportunity to audition uh, for Steve. Because in the intervening years, they had that bass player, a great bass player, who still plays with them, named Philip Lino. And then Billy Sheehan was doing that gig for a while. And I just figured, ah, you know, never going to get this gig now. <laughs> and uh, But sure enough, Steve wanted to change it up. And there were auditions. And I wanted to go. And I had already done work with him at this point. I'd already recorded a couple songs with him for his album on the Ultra Zone. And I'd done some shows with him with a live orchestra in Holland with the Metropole Orchestra. And so, uh, you know, I was like, I'd love to come and audition if you're having auditions. And he was like, ah, you know, Brian, you know, I, I, I know how you play and I really love how you play, but I just want to see what else is out there. What do you mean you want to see what else is out there? You already know how I play. You must not like me or something. Really easy to let your mind run away with that kind of train of thought. But, but I, instead, it was like, I just tried to focus on exactly what he said. You know, so I just said, okay, I, I get it. You want to see what else is out there. And so if you change your mind, you know, you can just call me. And I lived in Nashville at the time. So I was like, yeah, I can be in LA on short notice. And, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. You know, he started having auditions and he didn't like the way they were going. So he called me and he was like, how soon can you be here? I'm like, I'll be here in two days. So he gave me a really, really hard song to learn and another song. And the hard song had some parts in it that were just so difficult. They just, I just, I just couldn't play them correctly. And there was no way I was going to be able to play them correctly in the time that he'd given me. So uh, instead of falling into the trap of like, you know, spending all my time working on this tiny little part, which I wasn't going to get right anyway, and fall into the trap of thinking like I had to prove to him that I could do this. Instead, it was I took more of an approach to it, like, okay, well, listen, I'm going to learn these songs. I'll play them. And then just whatever happens, happens. And just make sure that I'm there and listening to the drummer and listening to him and just interacting with them. And then if I get it, I get it. If I don't, what are you going to do? So I went there and I played the first song, which was fine. I played the difficult song and I played, you know, most of it right. That one part came and I played it completely wrong. And we looked at each other and I just shrugged my shoulders and we laughed. And then we then we, we played a long jam after that. And it was total improv. And, you know, that was like the real audition, just vibing each other and everything. And later that day, he told me that I got the gig. So, you know, I mean, I mean, that's a very, very unusual story. I think that, you know, you get to kind of write your own kind of personal wrong or whatever you want to look at it. Like 11 years later, you know, it was, it was, it was quite a redemption story in a way, but I, I, and it's impossible to attribute it to any one thing, but I I do uh, think that some of it had to do with the way that I approached it mentally. It was more of a receiving space than a proving space. I have found that to be the case time and time again, Brian, it is um, as I've gotten more and more gray hair. Increasing <laughs> more gray hair. The least, the more I'm realizing it's not about me, and it's so much about the people I'm 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 serving. If I'm working with a band leader or an artist, if I'm listening and I'm interacting and I'm serving, it's like it's a whole different vibe. And when I was younger, I was proving and I was trying and I was shutting doors on my own self, you know, because 
in the end, I guess, you know, that's the maturity aspect of business. You know, because of your um, success, things have been attracted to you. I mean, you've you've got some educational things you've done with the Alfred Music video and the jam play. You had a, um, a course that, you, that got put out to the public. Longtime clinician at bass boot camp with Gerald Veasley. And then you have the, you know, most bass players, anybody trying to get a success in the business, they're trying to get an endorsement. They want that equipment with their name on it, you know? But it seemed like you had this sincere relationship with Mike Lowell, who, you know, passed away, what, last year? I know that you had worked closely with him, um, and it just seemed to be an authentic relationship of an artist and a builder uh, collaborating together. And, And you were using his basses long before you had a signature model. Yeah, I mean, like I started playing his instruments in 2000, and then, you know, we kind of worked up that the the signature model version of a Modern 5 in 2015 and 16, and then another one, a new one called the BBMF5, we were working on literally right up until he passed away. Mm. Uh, and that's out now because those are two different instruments. But yeah, the whole endorsement thing, I mean, I think people get it backwards. You know, people, it's some some players are out there and they'll phrase it like, oh yeah, I got an endorsement from this company. Like it was something that you were getting from the company. It's not actually how it works. Right. That, that you endorse the company as a player. That's the action direction. It's not like they're giving you some kind of status award by saying that that they endorse you. You're endorsing them because you're using their products. The implicit message is that you're using their products because they help you make music. Right. And they help you do the unique thing that it is that you do. Hopefully somebody out there cares about that enough to consider buying the product after learning that information. That's that that's the commercial aspect of an endorsement. Joe Smith, hotshot saxophone player, you know, plays awesome saxophones because Joe Smith is awesome and he loves these awesome saxophones and they make him sound awesome. And then regular saxophonist out there goes, Hmm, maybe I'll get a saxophone because I want to be awesome. Like awesome Joe saxophonist. And that, you know, that's the bread and butter of how endorsements work, not as like some kind of status to be wielded around by a musician. In your musical, your business end of it, how did that work into your business? Like you, there's a business relationship that forms from that uh, in terms of percentages and, and whatnot. Was that something that, was a help to you in your business been development or was that not as much of a it wasn't really a major factor for me you know it wasn't i wasn't deciding whether or not i was going to endorse mike wold based on whether or not i was going to get some kind of percentage on the signature model i i, I played them because i felt i was a better bass player playing mike wold bases than i was by playing anybody else's bases michael's a tiny company they they only have like 10 dealers across the entire united states I, that was not a deal I did, quote unquote, for the money. It was something that I really believed in passionately. And I think that's the, that should be the root of all endorsement deals for musicians. Is It's got to be about the gear first and whether or not it really speaks to you spiritually and holistically and creatively. If you're doing it any other way, that's not going to work in the long run, I don't think. So that's the way it is for me with Mike Lowell. That's the way it is for me with Galleon Kruger, which is the amplifiers I play now. And uh, that's the way it is with the Dario Strings. I've been with these companies for a long time now. Galleon Kruger, over 10 years. Mike Lowell, over 20 years. The Dario is like 25 years now. And I endorse them because I use them. Right. And because they help me make music. And any deal that's worked out on the side beyond that, that's just icing on the cake. Do they um, support you while you're pre-COVID, the clinics and stuff? Is that where the money's coming from? Or is it a combination of sort, uh, like collaboration of resources? Well, you know, I used to do more clinics than I have in the last few years. There just hasn't been a lot of time to get out there and do clinics in between all these touring lights. And, And that's just the reality of getting busy with these two bands, which I'm grateful for. But I love doing clinics. I love being in group instructional environments, especially with like 
20 to 40 people. I, I feel like that's ideal. So I'd love to be able to do them again, but you know, the Dario will, yeah, they'll support you as a clinician. Uh, they've supported me in the past. Mike Lowell used to support me when we were doing clinics too, but again, they don't have very many dealers. So there's not that many opportunities to do that sort of thing. Cause right. you really need to do it at a dealership. And Guy and Kruger doesn't always support clinics. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I mean, like, it's not really about that for me. The best thing that Guy and Kruger does for me, and it's the most important thing, it's much more important than whether or not we're doing Guy and Kruger clinics, is that they help me get Galleon Kruger gear when I'm overseas. I can get backline for the Joe Satriani tour, backline for the Aristocrats tour. And you know, they help me work out deals with backline companies so that we can get it at an affordable rate and the tour doesn't have to spend quite so much money on renting gear for eight months uh, for eight weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that stuff is all really valuable. But again, every one of these choices is driven by the sound they make, by the way I react to them musically. First, second, and third. Moving forward, you've uh, you had a lot of success going on before COVID nineteen shut down. Then it happened. We all had the wake up call that things were not going to be this right for a while, and here we are past the one year anniversary. What are some things that you've learned from this experience of shutting down? Is there some uh, experiences you've gained that uh, might not have happened? I mean, this is a pretty it was a substantial hit in the face for everybody. But I was curious what your uh, experience has been. Well, I, you know, we finished the aristocrats, most of the aristocrats, you know, what world tour we did all North America and we got both European legs in that was, you know, combined right there. That was about a hundred shows. We still had a, 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 an Asia and South America leg out there, but the, that those are like two or three weeks here and there. It wouldn't have been that much. That's unlike the Joe Satriani world tour that was due to start in April, 2020, which got completely wiped off the map. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's been rescheduled a couple of times now. And that's just the way it is. So I've been home and it's been a real great experience for, you know, you know, I've been hustling for a long time. It's a great experience to kind of just finally slow down. I may have been going like, you know, so hard and so fast. I forgot to stop and smell the roses along the way. And this has been a great opportunity to do that. Thankfully I've been able to, you know, kind of keep it together so that financially it just works, you know, no one's getting rich, but, but somehow it's, it's, it's not a catastrophe. And uh, when this is all over, I think that people will have a renewed appreciation for, live music and there's going to be a real pent-up demand for going out to see shows that's going to be good for people like me once everything opens up so that that time will come you know there's already you know the joe satriani tour and the people live nation believe me they're all working hard behind the scenes to get out there at the very very first opportunity as soon as this all clears up but i would say that it's been a great opportunity to remember that there is more to life than work you can see uh oh you can't see because this is an audio only but uh, on my Zoom right now, I've got a backdrop of this beautiful mountain setting. I live in a small mountain town north of Los Angeles, and I make sure to get out for hikes and get outside. And, you know, it's one of the things I look forward to the most when I get back from touring is coming back to this little town and enjoying nature. With everybody working from home, if you're able to work from home, there's been more of an opportunity to appreciate the things closer to home. Some of the things that are just kind of more basic in life than, you know, hustling and striving for work, even though we're talking about this is a musicpreneur and you know, that's a part of life is, is, is trying to make it work on your own. You have to give yourself some breathing room or else after a while, I think that it can take a toll on you. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, going back, that kind of talks to what we were talking about earlier about having it to give, you know, when you're touring. And, and uh, two, two, 2020 was going to be a big year for me. I had a lot of gigs booked and, and it yeah. really slowed me down and, made me take stock. I, mean, I was very fortunate because the job I have, I had 
uh, I was sustained through that, but a lot of my friends were really suffering. The live event industry, it's really what we are, you know, if you keep right down to it, it's been, you know, that we're the music business, entertainment business, you know, uh, professional athlete, whatever, you know, it's the, the live event business mm -hmm. got completely flattened. Usually it's funny because, you know, music and entertainment is kind of recession. You know, people aren't going to not spend maybe $20 to go to a concert or $10 on a CD. That's not the make or break stuff that happens during a recession. People tend to do that anyway. This was something that took the whole thing out. It's, I think it's something that we're all going to remember. Hopefully it'll be over soon and we can have it in the rearview mirror and be like, oh God, remember that year? That was weird. I am already seeing in the local uh, music scene uh, this hunger for live entertainment. I have, uh, I'm in a band now that it was already had a good community and following before I, um, I joined it and before the COVID shutdown. And the gigs we've been doing have been reservations have been booked out in advance you, you can't just show up and 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 plan on um going yeah. to the show you have to plan and i'm noticing that with a lot of things now restaurants i was in florida last week and amusement parks spoke out fast because of limited space but i think that's the thing is it, it's something to look forward to i think is because the people stay the whole night do you would you concur that's something you're seeing happen or is going to happen yeah. I mean, I think the only problem is going to be just the limiting factor of available venues. I mean, you know, we've all been cooped up for a year. All our touring cycles have been thrown off. Everybody's going to want to go out and tour once. There's only so many venues and they didn't all make it through this. I mean, there, there's going to be a moment where that rubber hits the road, uh, where every band is trying to book all at once. And that's going to be a little messy at first, I think. But it'll even out. It'll even out and people will be able to come see Lots of shows. As soon as everything's open up, man, we're, we're, you know, we've been sitting around. We're ready to play. It'll come, and I think it'll be good. Although, you know, I think the first couple of weeks of shows are going to be weird for everybody. No getting around that, you know. I, I, don't, I don't even remember what it's like to be in a room with a bunch of people. It's like, you know, there's going to be an initial weirdness. But <laughs> yeah. I think that we'll get past it pretty quick. Well, it's been cool getting to getting back in touch with you and, and catching up with this stuff. You, you've always demonstrated grit, tenacity, resourcefulness. Uh, you just got a, a great business mindset, and it's infectious. You know, I it made an impression on me as I was picking your brain about thoughts in terms of career progression. Now the music business is going to be a lot different as we get back on our feet. But are there any thoughts in terms of business mindedness towards the music business that you'd like to share as uh, thought uh, lessons uh, that you could impart on us now that you have more gray hair yourself? Well, just yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> just in your beard. It's definitely a little bit more of an uphill climb just because of the, the lower value of recorded music, that's a tough one. To, that's, that's, that's a tough nut to crack. Mm. And you can't put the streaming genie back in the bottle. That's not happening. There's no substitute for live shows. That's the one thing they can never take, you know, that, that can never be completely digitized is the experience of being in a room with a bunch of people enjoying a live performance. Now, you know, COVID flattened that, but that won't last forever. I would just, uh, everybody who's been, you know, waiting to get back out there, you know, just be ready to go when it's time to go. You know, as far as online strategies, I mean, here's what I would say. The, in the beginning, I think it's just going to be wild. You know, the, when, when, when everything opens back up, I think people have been delaying record releases, delaying tours. If fall 2021 is when everything opens back up, which is what I think it's going to be, really, then September is going to be an insane, crazy month with a million things coming out. You're not going to be able to keep track of it all. 
ride the wave for a little bit and make sure that whatever it is that you're doing, that it still has artistic integrity. It's still mm. the thing that you were doing kind of before this all happened. The thing that people identify with you, the thing that you're comfortable doing. The worst thing you can do is try and adapt so hard that you, you're doing something that's not really you. I think that's the best advice that I can give. Just make sure you just still, you're still doing you. I, I think from a business standpoint, I'm not smart enough to be able to see the future. I think there's going to be a few things that happen in the first few months that no one really knows yet. Just like there were some things about the COVID era that people couldn't have predicted, like guitar sales skyrocketing. It, just because people are home and stuck at home, that means they were all going to go buy guitars? Apparently the answer was yes, but nobody knew that before this happened. The guitar manufacturers got caught flat-footed and ended up having to, they're, they're back-ordered now. There's so many orders, they couldn't keep up with them. It's the best year they had in God knows how long. Right. Who can predict these things? So there'll be there'll be things like that that come up, and you just got to be ready to take advantage of them when they come up. Yeah, that's a that's a good good note to end with, Brian. Uh, you've uh, we could go on and on. You've had that tenacious spirit is what gets you recovering some of your instruments from a very sordid uh, <laughs> uh, experience coming back from a tour and finding out your storage locker or was a uh, container was uh, robbed. And it was interesting to see the story of how you just, just relentlessly like a bulldog clamped down and weren't giving up oh, God. <laughs> going on every lead more than a, the, the, the law enforcement were. And you recovered some of them. Let me tell you something. I only know one way to be. There are good things and there are sometimes, you know, uh, difficult things about that. I can be a little obsessive. When that happened, all I can say is that I just wasn't really able to sleep. Once I learned that that some of the items that I posted about it on social media and then kind of slipping into resignation and depression about it, and then someone responded and said, some of your stuff is here. And that started a 48-hour wild goose chase in trying to catch up to the people who had brought them to the Sam Ash in Canoga Park, California. Once I saw that there was a path forward, I just didn't know how to do anything except kind of do the next thing. I don't know how to describe that feeling. I don't know what it's like not to think like that. Two days later, there I was, I saw them and I caught up to them and I called the cops and the cops came and arrested them. And I remember just standing there just being like, did that just really happen? <laughs> and then I was finally able to sleep. It does speak to the way you've been managing your career. You get a you get a thought and you go for it and you just make it happen. And that's what's what I find very uh, a very cool thing about uh, that I find influential uh, to me. You know, being around you. Well, thank you very much. And you know, it was a great opportunity when you brought me to the Armed Forces School of Music. I, there aren't a lot of musicians who get to say that they've done that sort of thing. It's a funny place, funny world uh, for musicians and entertainers right. in general. It's not an easy business. You know, no business is easy these days. No, no. You know, not, you, yeah. either way, you gotta gotta go. You, you kind of gotta get out there and get after it. Well, if it was easy, as the old saying goes, everybody be doing it. So it right. takes a certain. Uh, it's the, the community that's involved with the musicpreneur there. They resonate with the idea of, I believe is that just the hard part, it, hard is not scary. It's not doing it. That's the scary thing, you know, not right. going after what you want. 
And then yeah. listening to people like you who give share their experiences and we, and we can relate to some or all of it and and um, be encouraged that we're not alone as we get after this stuff because it's certain is a special quality for people who go after any business especially music because there are things that could probably pay more especially when you think about the hours and the hourly rate that you spend on working on stuff it's just don't even think about that just on top of all it. the business aspect we practice our crafts yeah <laughs> you know? exactly it's crazy. but you know i guess you know listen you're gonna get out there doing more means you're gonna make more mistakes you know that's gonna happen just gotta get out there and do it and when things get screwed up that's part of doing it just kind of pick yourself up and kind of move on to the next thing. Fix something if it needs, if it's broken, go back and fix it and then keep moving on. Listen, we got brianbeller.com is where you can uh, get curious and discover a lot about Brian. He's got a long discography. You don't want to miss out. Like there's just, you've had some really fun experiences. I love that death clock. Again, to see you play that live with uh, the court two network tour. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to see you live with aristocrats because most of the dates have been way away from me here in Virginia Beach. Did we ever, I'm not sure we ever did Richmond. I don't think we did. I think we, we kind of did Washington, D.C., and then sure. uh, we skipped down to uh, Raleigh. Yeah, well, you know, there's hope for the future. Uh, I'll keep yeah. my eyes out for a place that I could at least drive to. But yeah, you, you and you've had your solo album was just a, it's a trip to listen to. It, it's an experience. Right. It came out in 2019. It was a, a, a love uh, you, one of your projects that you just just had to come out of you, right? I mean, that was yeah. this, the sense I got out of it. It's a trip to listen to. Yeah, it was just years, years I had it in my head. I finally just needed to get it out. I'm grateful yeah. it exists. Yeah, that's good. Well, Brian, you've accomplished a lot, and you're a great example of going after what you love and, and not giving up. And, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me here and reconnect. I just look forward to seeing what, what comes of it in the future from you. And um, I'd love to be able to talk to you again when that happens. Well, happy to do it again. Let's, let's get everything moving again. Let's get back out there and then see how it all shakes out. All right, Brian, you take care. And uh, I'm just going to close us out. Thank you all for listening to Musicpreneur podcast is my uh, guest today brian beller just a great example of of not giving up and um going after his dreams and making a lot of things happen and uh thank you for listening visit musicpreneur.com for more podcasts and access to the exclusive musicpreneur mobile app that contains content not available anywhere else on the web that's musicpreneur.com thanks for listening